to the Underclass Podcast with Austin Picard. I'm an independent researcher who can't stomach being lied to on a daily basis by the mainstream media, while we live in a fracturing society launched into parallel realities, falling perfectly onto the two sides of the political spectrum, our main and the underclass. Oscar Wilde once said, Man is least himself when he talks in his own person. Give him a mask, and he will tell you the truth. Episode 16, we spotlight the death of the free press, hoping to emphasize the importance of the role that whistleblowers play in our time. The investigation of a moral hazard boldly outlining a country well past the precipice, coming to terms with the harsh reality of an unacknowledged existential crisis. In the age of corporate government-sponsored fact-checkers, manufactured misinformation, and online digital censorship, we must take a moment to reflect on the unprecedented time we find ourselves in. The war on the minds of the American public wages on, yet we persevere and remain steadfast in our obligation to hold these controlling operators accountable in spite of counter-influences and in grappling with the discouraging prospect of a contrived modernized form of authoritarian fascism, we've arrived at the 11th hour. February 8th, President Bill Clinton signs the Telecommunications Act of 1996. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, members of Congress, and ladies and gentlemen. I'd like to begin by thanking the Library of Congress for hosting us here. At my understanding, this may be the only time in American history a piece of legislation has been signed here, and perhaps the first time in three decades when one has been signed on Capitol Hill. If that is so, then this is certainly a worthy occasion. I thank uh, Lily Tomlin for reminding us that the internet can be fun. And the students at Calvin Coolidge for reminding us that the internet can do a world of good. I thank the Vice President who fought for this bill for so long on behalf of the American people. And I thank the members of Congress in both parties, starting with the leadership, who believed in the promise and the possibility of telecommunications reform. I thank the vast array of interest groups who had sometimes conflicting concerns about this bill, who were able to work together and work through them so that we could move this together. This law is truly revolutionary legislation that will bring the future to our doorstep. In the State of the Union just a few days ago, I asked the Congress to pass this law, and they did with remarkable speed and dispatch. Even the years that were spent working on it were a relatively short time given the tradition of congressional decision-making over major matters. This historic legislation, in my way of thinking, really embodies what we ought to be about as a country and what we ought to be about in this city. It clearly enables the age of possibility in America to expand, to include more Americans. It will create many, many high-wage jobs. It will provide for more information and more entertainment. 
to virtually every American home. It embodies our best values by supporting the kind of market reforms that the Vice President mentioned, as well as the V-CHIP. And it brings us together, and it was passed by people coming together. This bill is an indication of what can be done when Republicans and Democrats work together in a spirit of genuine cooperation to advance the public interest and bring us to a better future. I guess that's one way to describe a government-backed corporate takeover of an entire industry while paving way to a state-sponsored media monopoly. Investigative journalist Michael Corcoran would put it a bit differently in an article at truthout.org, claiming that the legislation was essentially bought and paid for by corporate media lobbies, as fairness and accuracy in reporting described it, and radically opened the floodgates on mergers. The negative impact of the law cannot be overstated. The law, which was the first major reform of the telecommunications policy since 1934, according to media scholar Robert McChesney, is widely considered to be one of the three or four most important federal laws of this generation. The act dramatically reduced important Federal Communications Commission FCC regulations on cross-ownership and allowed giant corporations to buy up thousands of media outlets across the country, increasing their monopoly on the flow of information in the United States and around the world. Never have so many been held incommunicado by so few, said Eduardo Galliano, the Latin American journalist in response to the act. Almost 30 years later, the devastating impact of the legislation is undeniable. About 90% of the country's major media companies are owned by six corporations. Bill Clinton's legacy in empowering the consolidation of corporate media is right up there with the North American Free Trade Agreement and welfare reform as being among the most tragic and destructive policies of his administration. The Telecommunications Act of 1996 is not merely a regrettable part of history. It serves as a stern warning about what is at stake in the future. In a media world that is going through a massive transformation, media companies have dramatically increased efforts to wield influence in Washington, with a massive lobbying presence and a steady dose of campaign donations to politicians in both parties, with the goal of allowing more consolidation and privatizing and commodifying the internet. The subversive nature of the Telecommunications Act coincided with the rise of the mass surveillance state, causing an equal and opposite reaction, leading to a new wave of what they called hacktivism, which has been defined as the use of computer-based techniques such as hacking as a form of civil disobedience to promote a political agenda or social change. With roots in hacker culture and hacker ethics, its ends are often related to free speech, human rights, or freedom of information movements. Groups such as Anonymous, Cult of the Dead Cow, and International Subversives quickly gained notoriety leading us to the origin story of a prodigal computer hacker under the handle Mindax, taken from the ancient Roman poet and known in Latin as nobly untruthful. Mindax was the founding member of the group of hackers we made mention of called International Subversives in the late 80s, and after hacking into the computer system of a major telecommunications company in the early 90s, Mindax would be arrested and outed as an Australian citizen by the name of Julian Assange. 
as the story goes, according to Robert Mann in an essay titled The Cypherpunk Revolutionary. Around 1988, Assange joined this subculture under the handle Mindax. By October 1989, an attack was mounted from Australia on the NASA computer system via the introduction of what was called the Wank Worm in an attempt to sabotage the Jupiter launch of the Galileo rocket as part of an action of anti-nuclear activists. No one claimed responsibility for this attack, which is outlined in the first chapter of the 1997 book Underground. In an article he later published in the left-wing magazine Counterpunch, Assange would claim the Wank Worm attack was the origin of hacktivism. In a Swedish television documentary, Wiki Rebels, made with Assange's cooperation, there are hints he was responsible. Mindax formed a closed group with two other hackers, Trax and Prime Suspect. They called themselves the International Subversives. According to Dreyfus, their politics was fiercely anti-establishment. Their motive adventure and intellectual curiosity, their strict ethic not to profit by their hacking or to harm the computers they entered. Mindax wrote a program called Psychophant. It allowed the international subversives to conduct massive attacks on the U.S. military. The list of the computers they could recall finding their way into read like a who's who of the American military-industrial complex. Eventually, Mindax penetrated the computer system of the Canadian telecommunications corporation Nortel. It was here that his hacking was first discovered. The Australian Federal Police conducted a long investigation into the international subversives, Operation Weather. Eventually, Trax lost his nerve and began to talk. He told the police that the international subversives had been hacking on a scale never achieved before. In October 1991, the Australian Federal Police raided prime suspects in Mindax's homes. They found Assange in a state of near-mental collapse. His young wife had recently left him, taking their son Daniel. Assange told Dreyfus that he had been dreaming incessantly of police raids, of shadows in the pre-dawn darkness, of a gun-toting police squad bursting through his back door at 5 a.m. When the police arrived, the incriminating disks, which he had been in the habit of hiding inside a beehive, were scattered by his computer. The evidence was removed. Assange descended into a personal hell. He entered a psychiatric ward briefly. He tried and failed to return home to live with his mother. He frequently slept along Mary Creek in Melbourne or in Sherbrooke Forest. He told Dreyfus that 1992 was the worst year in his life. The formal charges against Assange were not laid until July 1994. His case was not finally settled until December 1996. Although Assange had been speaking in secretive tones about the technical possibility of a massive prison sentence, in the end he received a $5,000 good behavior bond and a $2,100 reparations fine. The experience of arrest and trial nonetheless scarred his soul and helped shape his politics. In his blog, July 17, 2006, Assange wrote, If there is a book whose feeling captures me, it is First Circle by Solzhenitsyn. To feel that home is the camaraderie of persecuted, and in fact prosecuted, polymaths in a Stalinist labor camp. How close the parallels to my own adventures. 
Such prosecution in youth is a defining peak experience. To know the state for what it really is. To see through that veneer the educated swear to disbelieve in, but still slavishly follow with their hearts. True belief only begins with a jackboot at the door. True belief forms when led into the dock and referred to in the third person. True belief is when a distant voice booms. The prisoner shall now rise, and no one else in the room stands. Multiple reports claim that Assange had a self-imposed set of ethics. He did not damage or crash systems or data he hacked, and he shared information. Assange's official biography called him Australia's most famous ethical computer hacker and said he hacked thousands of systems when he was younger, including the Pentagon. In late 1992, a group formed that met monthly in the San Francisco Bay Area at a company owned by John Gilmore called Cygnus Solutions. At one of the first meetings, a member by the name of Judith Milhun came up with the name Cypherpunk as a play on words, and this group would prove to be influential in the life of Julian Assange in a way cultivating his preconceived ideas and political philosophy. The cypherpunks created an emailing list that had grown to around 2,000 by 1997, and they soon started to implement their own underground subculture primarily centered around this politically driven ideological crusade. According to Robert Mann, at the core of the cypherpunk philosophy was the belief that the great question of politics in the age of the internet was whether the state would strangle individual freedom and privacy through its capacity for electronic surveillance, or whether autonomous individuals would eventually undermine and even destroy the state through their deployment of electronic weapons newly at hand. Many cypherpunks were optimistic that in the battle for the future of humankind between the state and the individual, the individual would ultimately triumph. Their optimism was based on developments in intellectual history and computer software. The invention in the mid-1970s of public key cryptography by Whitfield Diffie and Martin Hellman, and the creation by Phil Zimmerman in the early 1990s of a program known as PGP, Pretty Good Privacy. At the time the cypherpunks formed, the American government strongly opposed the free circulation of public key cryptography. It feared that making it available would strengthen the hands of the espionage agencies of America's enemies abroad and of terrorists, organized criminals, drug dealers, and pornographers at home. For the cypherpunks, the question of whether cryptography would be freely available would determine the outcome of the great battle of the age. Their most important practical task was to write software that would expand the opportunities for anonymous communication made possible by public key cryptography. One of the key projects of the cypherpunks was remailers, software systems that made it impossible for governments to trace the passage from sender to receiver of encrypted email traffic. Another key project was digital cash, a means of disguising financial transactions from the state. Around 1994, Julian Assange joined the Cypherpunks email list and quickly became a contributor from December 1995 to June 2002. It was pointed out by another member of the group that Julian had been writing code since he was 14 years old. He began programming in 1994 
authoring multiple systems including a deniable encryption system called Rubber Hose by 1997. Assange would register a handful of domain sites during this time, and he would later admit to registering a domain site in 1999 known as leaks.org, which he claims he did nothing with. Sulet Dreyfus wrote a book published in 1997 called Underground, Tales of Hacking, Madness, and Obsession on the Electronic Frontier, using Julian Assange as her primary researcher for the book. The plot describes the exploits of a group of Australian, American, and British black hat hackers during the late 1980s and early 90s. Dreyfus claims that Assange told her that he had acted as a conduit for leaked documents when fighting local corruption. Andy Greenberg is a technology journalist, former staff writer and contributor to Forbes magazine, who interviewed Julian Assange and asked, How did you start to approach your leak strategy? When we started Suburbia in 1993, I knew that bringing information to the people was very important. We facilitated many groups. We were the electronic printer, if you like, for many companies and individuals who were using us to publish information. They were bringing us information, and some of them were activist groups, lawyers, and some bringing forth information about companies like Telstra, the Australian telecommunications giant. We published information on them as something I was doing in the 1990s. We were the free speech ISP internet service provider in Australia. An Australian anti-church of Scientology website was hounded out of Victoria University by legal threats from California and hounded out of a lot of places. Eventually they came to us. People were fleeing from ISPs that would fold under legal threats, even from a cult in the U.S. that's something I saw early on. Without realizing it, potentiating people to reveal their information, creating a conduit. Without having any other robust publisher in the market, people came to us. In November 1996, Assange reportedly sent an email to lists he had created mentioning a leaks project. By August 1999, he would publicize an NSA patent for voice data harvesting technology, issuing a warning that this patent should worry people. Everyone's overseas phone calls are or may soon be tapped, transcribed, and archived in the bowels of an unaccountable foreign spy agency. In 2003, Julian Assange went to the University of Melbourne, where he primarily studied physics and mathematics, even becoming the vice president of the Students' Mathematics and Statistics Society. A report in the Sydney Morning Herald wrote that a geek friend of his once described Assange as having an IQ in excess of 170, and it was said that Assange claimed that he'd become disillusioned with the Applied Maths Department when he discovered its members were working with defense authorities in the U.S. on a military bulldozer adapted to desert conditions known as the Grizzly Plow. Leading up to the formation of WikiLeaks in 2006, Assange, now 35 years old, had a personal blog he had been consistently maintaining under the title Selected Correspondence at IQ.org, and according to an essay from March 2011 by Robert Mann, Assange's selected correspondence is addressed to a small coterie of followers. It involves a revolutionary call to arms. If we can only live once, and let it be a daring adventure that draws on all our powers, 
Let our grandchildren delight to find the start of our stories in their ears, but the endings all around in their wandering eyes. Assange seems not particularly interested in future political institutions or in economic arrangements. The revolution he speaks about is moral. He believes that individual action can refashion the world. The state may do what it can get away with, but it does what we let it get away with, and even what we let ourselves get away with, for we and our interactions with others form the state. Over the whole selected correspondence, there is a quotation from the German-Jewish revolutionary anarchist Gustav Lander. Beaten to death by right-wing troops after the Munich Soviet experiment of 1919, the state is a condition, a certain relationship between human beings, a mode of behavior. We destroy it by contracting other relationships, by behaving differently toward one another. We are the state. And we shall continue to be the state until we have created the institutions that form a real community and society of men. The question is how new institutions can be formed. In the struggle to create a truly human society, Assange warns his interlocutors not to believe they can think globally, but act locally. This is an illusion. Action must be taken on a truly global scale. He is also witheringly contemptuous of those he calls the typical shy intellectual. This type is often of a noble heart, wilted by fear of conflict with authority. The power of their intellect and noble instincts may lead them to a courageous position where they see the need to take up arms, but their instinctive fear of authority then motivates them to find rationalizations to avoid conflict. For Assange, the central political virtue is courage. One of his favorite sayings is, courage is contagious. He attributes it to the Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg. In fact, it was coined by the evangelist Billy Graham. Assange's politics are also generational. Perhaps as an old man, I will take great comfort in pottering around in a lab and gently talking to students in the summer evening, and will accept suffering with insouciance. But not now. Men in their prime, if they have convictions, are tasked to act on them. On December 3, 2006, Julian Assange published a five-page essay at IQ.org that outlined the thought experiment behind WikiLeaks giving it the title Conspiracy as Governance, beginning the essay by providing the defined origin of the word conspiracy. Conspire. Make secret plans jointly to commit a harmful act, working together to bring about a particular result, typically to someone's detriment. The best party is but a kind of conspiracy against the rest of the nation. Lord Halifax. Security gives way to conspiracy. Julius Caesar, Act 2, Scene 3. The soothsayer's message, but Caesar is too busy to look at it. Introduction. To radically shift regime behavior, 
We must think clearly and boldly, for if we have learned anything, it is that regimes do not want to be changed. We must think beyond those who have gone before us and discover technological changes that embolden us with ways to act in which our forebears could not. We must understand the key generative structure from, of bad governments. We must develop a way of thinking about this structure that is strong enough to carry us through the mire of competing political moralities and into a position of clarity. Most importantly, we must use these insights to inspire within us and others the force of ennobling and effective action to replace the structures that lead to bad governance with something better. Every time we witness an act that we feel to be unjust and do not act, we become a party to injustice. Those who are repeatedly passive in the face of injustice soon find their character corroded into servility. Most witnessed acts of injustice are associated with bad governance, since when governance is good, unanswered injustice is rare. By the progressive diminution of a people's character, the impact of reported but unanswered injustice is far greater than it may initially seem. Modern communication states through their scale, homogeneity, and excesses provide their populace with an unprecedented deluge of witnessed but seemingly unanswerable injustices. Conspiracy as governance in authoritarian regimes Where details are known as to the inner workings of authoritarian regimes, we see conspiratorial interactions among the political elite, not merely for preferment or favor within the regime, but as the primary planning methodology behind maintaining or strengthening authoritarian power. Authoritarian regimes create forces which oppose them by pushing against the people's will to truth, love, and self-realization. Plans which assist authoritarian rule, once discovered, induce further resistance. Hence, such schemes are concealed by successful authoritarian powers until resistance is futile or outweighed by the efficiencies of naked power. This collaborative secrecy, working to the detriment of a population, is enough to define their behavior as conspiratorial. He proceeds to quote Machiavelli. Thus it happens in matters of state, for knowing afar off, which it is only given a prudent man to do. The evils that are brewing, they are easily cured. But when, for want of such knowledge, they are allowed to grow until everyone can recognize them, there is no longer any remedy to be found. The more secretive or unjust an organization is, the more leaks induce fear and paranoia in the leadership and planning cautery. This must result in minimization of efficient internal communications mechanisms, an increase in cognitive secrecy tax, and consequent system-wide cognitive decline resulting in decreased ability to hold on to power as the environment demands adaptation. Hence, in a world where leaking is easy, secretive or unjust systems are non-linearly hit relative to open, just systems since unjust systems, by their nature, induce opponents, and in many places, barely have the upper hand. Leaking leaves them exquisitely vulnerable to those who seek to replace them with more open forms of governance. Assange concludes the essay with a section headlined, 
An authoritarian conspiracy that cannot think is powerless to preserve itself against the opponents it induces. When we look at an authoritarian conspiracy as a whole, we see a system of interacting organs, a beast with arteries and veins whose blood may be thickened and slowed until it falls stupefied, unable to sufficiently comprehend and control the forces in its environment. Later, we will see how new technology and insights into the psychological motivations of conspirators can give us practical methods for preventing or reducing important communication between authoritarian conspirators, foment strong resistance to authoritarian planning, and create powerful incentives for more humane forms of governance. Clearly, by the time Julian established WikiLeaks in late 2006, he was almost purely driven by his passionate objection to state secrets and a strong appetite for revolution. On October 4th, he would register WikiLeaks.org in the U.S. and reportedly chose the name due to his admiration of the Wikipedia experiment. He listed two names under the domain registration. One was his biological father, and the other was a man by the name of John Young, who was also a contributing member of the cypherpunks from the 90s electronic mailing list. John Young was a New York architect who also created a leaks website named Cryptome.org in 1996. It remains active to this day, and when Julian reached out to John, he told him, You knew me under another name from cypherpunks days. I am involved in a project that you may have a feeling for. The project is a mass document leaking project that requires someone with backbone to hold the .org domain registration. We expect the domain to come under the usual political and legal pressure. The policy for .org requires that registrants' names not be false or misleading. It would be an easy play to cancel the domain unless someone were willing to stand up and claim to be the registrant. At the time of the site's launch, he wrote to potential whistleblowers, Our primary targets are those highly oppressive regimes in China, Russia, and Central Eurasia. But we also expect to be of assistance to those in the West who wish to reveal illegal or immoral behavior in their own governments and corporations. He quickly began to assemble an advisory board in order to gain legitimacy and credibility, even reportedly reaching out to legendary whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg, who had been responsible for leaking the Pentagon Papers that helped bring about the end to the Vietnam War. Assange told Ellsberg, We'd like your advice, and we'd like you to form part of our political armor. The more armor we have, particularly in the form of men and women sanctified by age, history, and class, the more we can act like brazen young men and get away with it. Ellsberg responded by saying, Your concept is terrific, and I wish you the best of luck with it. After starting the site on a computer in Australia, WikiLeaks decided to move their servers to Sweden due to its robust press protection laws. WikiLeaks had been relying solely on the voluntary labor of four staffers by the time they received their first batch of documents, posted to the site in December 2006. A volunteer had mined over a million documents from an encryption network designed to allow users to transmit data anonymously. The site would find themselves in legal trouble after revealing the torturous conditions found in the U.S. military's detention facility at Guantanamo Bay through exposing their standard operating procedures. 
As a result of legal action in the U.S., the site was briefly shut down due to a legal injunction that would later be vacated because of First Amendment concerns cited by the judge, as well as questions about legal jurisdiction. WikiLeaks would continue exposing widespread corruption, extrajudicial killings, internet censorship lists, environmental crimes, even dragging Scientology kicking and screaming through the mud. In 2009, the UK chapter of Amnesty International would even give an award to WikiLeaks and Julian Assange for the distribution of the Kenya National Commission on Human Rights, ANCHR, the Cry of Blood Report. By November 2009, WikiLeaks was back in the headlines when it released a batch of internal emails showing correspondence between climate scientists from East Anglia University's Climate Research Unit ClimateGate, as it's referred to by many, has been pointed to as proof of a conspiracy to silence debate or conceal data on the subject of global warming through a compromised peer review process. The Gorgon's gaze would focus in on Julian, WikiLeaks, and its closest supporters by April 2010, after the released video footage from the gunner cam of a U.S. Apache military helicopter killing 18 civilians, including two Reuters reporters in Baghdad. This would be the first of the major revelations coming from the unprecedented Manning leaks that would subsequently include the Iraq and Afghan war logs, as well as the release of the U.S. diplomatic cables. This marked the beginning of the end for Julian Assange, who told reporters while responding to the recent attacks on him and the organization we always expect tremendous criticism. It is my role to be the lightning rod, to attract the attacks against the organization for our work. And that is a difficult role. On the other hand, I get undue credit. Julian spoke with the Turkish broadcasting service, TRT World Now, on the actual mission of the transnational elite in Afghanistan, as well as sitting down with The Guardian on July 26, 2010, speaking on the disclosure of the Afghan war logs. Because the goal is not to completely subjugate Afghanistan. The goal is to use Afghanistan to wash money out of the tax bases of the United States, out of the tax bases of European countries, through Afghanistan, and back into the hands of a transnational security elite. That is the goal, i.e. the goal is to have an endless war, not a successful war. Hundreds of civilian deaths, a black unit to hunt down Taliban leaders, intelligence pointing to Pakistani and Iranian involvement in the insurgency. The US military's secret Afghanistan war logs provide the most revealing picture of the conflict so far. An hour-by-hour -hour account emerges from 92,000 cryptic reports, each recording an incident involving NATO troops, a Taliban attack, or intelligence received. They were shared with The Guardian, The New York Times and Der Spiegel by the whistleblower's website, WikiLeaks. Its founder, Julian Assange, explains why he made it public. If journalism is good, it is controversial by, by its nature. Uh, it is the role of good journalism to take on powerful abuses. And when powerful abuses are taken on, there is always a back reaction. So we see that controversy um, and we I believe that is a, a good thing to engage in. And in this case, um, it will show the, the true nature of this war. And then the, the public from Afghanistan and other nations 
um, can see what's really going on and take steps to address the problems. The significance of this material is both the overarching context, that is it covers the entire war since 2004, and individual events which are also significant, or a thread of events. So those include something like Task Force 373, an US-based assassination squad that goes around uh, Afghanistan killing people on a kill or capture list. Uh, it includes significant events where many people were killed. Uh, for instance, we are looking at an event that killed 181 people uh, at once, um, some by an AC-130 gunship. Um, it includes um, detail about how the war is supported in various ways. So how the um, political class in Kabul interfaces with US military and intelligence, how the corruption uh, is spread through that community, but also how the war is mediated by Pakistan and possibly by Iran. The nearest analogue is the Pentagon Papers, uh, which was released in the early 70s. That exposed how the United States was prosecuting the war in Vietnam. That was some 10,000 pages, and some of those pages were accepted and uh, put into the New York Times and other US newspapers. It wasn't for several years that uh, a book was published of some 5,000 of those pages by Beacon Press. This situation is different in that it's not just more material and being pushed to a bigger audience and much sooner, if you like, everyone has the book, the whole lot at once, but rather that people can give back. So people around the world who are reading this are able to comment on it and uh, put it in context and understand the full situation. That is not something that has previously occurred and that is something that can only be brought about as a result of the internet. Militaries keep information secret to prosecute their part of a war but also to hide abuse. And there is a military argument for keeping some information secret uh, that is very timely. So the, an example of where troops are about to deploy. Um, but that information expires quickly. And this information um, ranges from 2004 to 2010. Uh, so that argument uh, is not valid for this type of information. This legend on my t-shirt is really quite nice. It's from the Norwegian Journalist Association, SKUP. And it says, uh, dig down in time. And it's a, a reference to the snowfalls in Norway that if you're up in the mountains and there's a lot of snow, you've got to dig down in time to, to be safe. But for investigative journalism, this is dig down into the archives to understand. In less than two months, unsubstantiated sexual assault allegations later acknowledged as a strategic character assassination were made public, and Julian turned himself in to be questioned by the Stockholm police, later saying that the case was a matter of international politics and referred to Sweden as a U.S. satrapy. A federal grand jury began an investigation into WikiLeaks, and in November 2010, U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder said there was an active, ongoing criminal investigation into WikiLeaks. 
later revealed through documents obtained in the Snowden leaks, were covert surveillance and pressure tactics aimed at WikiLeaks and its supporters during this time, including a classified document dated August 2010 recounting how the Obama administration urged foreign allies to file criminal charges against Assange over the group's publication of the Afghan war logs. In less than two years, Assange would be trapped in the Ecuadorian embassy in London for a premature sentence of seven years, attempting to avoid extradition laws to the United States where he's awaiting charges under the extremely controversial 1917 Espionage Act signed into law by Woodrow Wilson. Beyond the unprecedented nature of charging a publisher for publishing documents carefully redacted in order to protect the lives of private individuals, the idea that the United States can charge a foreign citizen under the Espionage Act also does not pass the threshold for constitutional legality. The law was originally used to jail and imprison political dissidents and journalists who spoke out against the United States' intervention into World War I. However, this broad, vague interpretation of the law being used to punish a publisher for publishing the truth is absolutely unheard of. The DOJ under the Obama administration would decide against handing down indictments on Assange, claiming it could not find evidence that Julian's actions differed from those of a journalist. The New York Times reported that back-channel negotiations with the new Trump administration and Assange's lawyers had fallen through after attempting to achieve some form of immunity from prosecution due to the fact that Assange published the CIA's Vault 7 documents they requested be withheld from disclosure. In April 2017, CIA Director Mike Pompeo would call WikiLeaks a non-state hostile intelligence service. And in a Yahoo News report, according to former intelligence officials, in the wake of the Vault 7 leaks, the CIA talked about kidnapping or even assassinating Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, which many believe accelerated the indictment in an effort to protect Assange after these concerned insiders alerted members of the House and Senate intelligence committees to the proposed plans. WikiLeaks reported on a corruption scandal in Ecuador implicating President Moreno in the scandal who subsequently claimed that Assange had violated the terms of his asylum, expelling Assange from the embassy, and finally placing him into the hands of the UK police. The Washington Post would later report that according to Julian's father, Ecuador revoked Assange's asylum as part of a deal with the US to receive a loan from the International Monetary Fund. When Julian Assange founded WikiLeaks, he put together a descriptive vision of what WikiLeaks would hopefully achieve and represent, releasing a public statement in January of 2007 that read, Principled leaking has changed the course of human history for the better. It can alter the course of history in the present. It can lead to a better future. Public scrutiny of otherwise unaccountable and secretive institutions pressures them to act ethically. What official will chance a secret corrupt transaction when the public is likely to find out? When the risks of embarrassment through openness and honesty increase, the tables are turned against conspiracy, corruption, exploitation, and oppression. Instead of a couple of academic specialists, WikiLeaks will provide a forum for the entire global community to examine any document relentlessly 
credibility, plausibility, veracity, and falsifiability. WikiLeaks may become the most powerful intelligence agency on earth, an intelligence agency of the people. WikiLeaks will be an anvil at which beats the hammer of the collective conscience of humanity. WikiLeaks, we hope, will be a new star in the political firmament of humanity. As we conclude our investigation of a moral hazard, boldly outlining a country well past the precipice, coming to terms with the harsh reality of an unacknowledged existential crisis, I recognize Julian Assange as a hero, a principled publisher, and an honorable journalist, championing free speech and government accountability in the modern age. In a time of corporate government-sponsored fact-checkers, manufactured misinformation, and online digital censorship, we must take a moment to reflect on the unprecedented time we find ourselves in. The war on the minds of the American public wages on, yet we persevere and remain steadfast in our obligation to hold these controlling operators accountable in spite of counter-influences. And in grappling with the discouraging prospect of a contrived modernized form of authoritarian fascism, we've arrived at the 11th hour, awaiting the final swing of the pendulum as the freedom of the press hangs in the balance, eager to set a new precedent. We shout back, free Julian Assange. Mm -hmm.